Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Edward Marshall, and I'd like to welcome you to our latest discussion in our family office series here at Boston Private. Today's conversation focuses on the coronavirus and its impact on the family office landscape. Uh, from how we work to how our children go to school to the way we get our groceries and the way we meet with our loved ones, this virus has changed our lives. The very tech innovations that were intended to support home, school, business operations uh, during times like this are certainly stretched to their limits. This pandemic has also created numerous cyber, health, operational, and physical security vulnerabilities. However, there are some clear steps that families can take to keep their family on track, mitigate risk, and position for success after the crisis. Today, we've gathered a group of global risk management experts that will give us their insights on practical steps that family offices can implement now. Well, let's jump in with some brief introductions. Carl, let's get started with uh, your background. Uh, Carl Hopkins, partner and global chief security officer of Denton, the world's largest law firm. Let's get uh, a little bit about your background. Uh, thanks, Eddie. As you say, I'm, I'm the chief security officer for Denton's. We have the distinction of being the, the world's largest law firm. We operate in over 70 countries and have 180 plus offices. So and those who may be familiar with us know that we have a, a large presence in China as well. So we've been living with this for a while. Uh, my background is one of I come out of a, of a risk management background. I've done a lot of a lot of and had practice internationally uh, my whole career, and uh, like many on this call, have been dealing with this on a, on a global basis and how it impacts us from not only the human aspect of it, but um, the cybersecurity impact, physical security, supply chain, a number of the other issues that I'm sure we'll talk about today. Um, Eddie, I'll turn it back to you. I'll keep the introduction brief. Sure. Thank you, Carl. Uh, Lon, are you on the line with us? Yes, I am. I'm here. Excellent. Lon Augustenberg, CEO of Novus Intelligence, a global security firm. Lon, if you wouldn't mind, give us a little background uh, on your experience. Uh, I, thank you, Eddie. Um, I had a 35-year career at CIA, uh, all on the operational side. Now, that's the side that, you know, commits espionage and steals secrets. Uh, I was the chief of station in four locations, including the largest domestic office. I formed uh, Novus Intelligence a few years ago. We're a global risk mitigation firm that does cybersecurity across the board, cyber investigations. We also do due diligence on a global scale, as well as um, physical security and basically any kind of problem solving we can do uh, specializing in with family offices. Great. Thank you, Lon. And Will, are you on the line? Yes, sir. All right. Will Limer, family office digital security expert and managing director at Banyan Risk Group. Uh, could you give us a little bit about your background? Yeah, thanks very much, Eddie. Great to be here. Uh, like you mentioned, I, I serve as managing director at Banyan Risk Group, uh, where I help lead the digital security practice. We provide cybersecurity solutions and services to family offices globally, uh, as well as other groups targeted by cyber criminals. In terms of professional experience, uh, briefly, uh, I previously served as both a political aide uh, in the office of the Prime Minister of Canada, as well as a military officer. Following my time in both uh, uniform and the government, I've helped build some award-winning cybersecurity companies uh, alongside world-class talents from the military and national security community, uh, all of whom held highly specialized roles. Uh, one of my cybersecurity companies was acquired last fall, uh, representing my first exit. And uh, today, I have the privilege of working with and advising family offices uh, globally. I'm very happy to be here. Great. Let's get started and, and jump in here. Carl, uh, if you don't mind, we'll get started with you. I mean, from your position, you have a, a unique ability to see risk management through a legal lens in many, many different jurisdictions around the world. How well do you think family offices were prepared for this pandemic? Uh, these are some of the challenges we're all putting up with these days. I mean, right uh, from a technology standpoint, I think uh, uh, I think it would be unfair to say that anybody was, you know, 100 uh, percent prepared for this or uh, prepared for this at all. I mean, this is something people had talked about, a pandemic in abstract, but I don't know that uh, anyone ever really thought this was the kind of thing we, that would happen. However, those, ent uh, those entities that did have and have practiced, you know, uh, you know 
disciplined business continuity plans, had technology and the redundancy around that, have done quite well. Uh, others who are trying to implement this at this time have been caught a little bit uh, flat-footed, and I think it, you know, it's all about connectivity these days, as I think we're all experiencing. Uh, business is going on. Uh, a lot of new business is going on. M many firms we talk to, and family offices in particular, are, are quite busy right now. There's, there's, a, there's a lot to be done. The, uh, the question is, do you have the infrastructure and the connectivity you know, with your people to do that? And uh, what we've seen around, uh, across, you know, just across the globe, uh, some are pretty well situated to do that, and others are, uh, are are scrambling to catch up. So it's been a wide variety. I think you'll see that across almost any industry. But but it's all about the technology and being able to keep your people connected at the moment. You mentioned being a little bit uh, better uh, fluted for this. Any you know outliers in terms of best practices that you're seeing with uh, with your clients? I think you know, one of the things is, is just the, uh, the the cyber resiliency. I think some of the other panelists will talk about that as well. But you know, do you really have that ability on a day in, day out uh, to to maintain comms, to have the redundancy into that, you know, move documents, information uh, around? Because as we're all experiencing in one form or another, uh, no matter where you are in the world, there's some kind of a lockdown. And I think one of the things that we're seeing those that are uh, looking at this as more of a midterm type problem that have been able to move rather quickly from the response phase and into the continuity and resiliency phase uh, are, are, are doing reasonably well. Uh, those who had not been able to stand those processes up in the short term, uh, I think, are, are playing some catch up. What about uh, labor laws and other uh, implications uh, from the legal world that you're seeing that um, might be taking place during this crisis or, or after it? It's a, it's a great question. I, I think we've seen a number of countries that have, uh, have frankly suffered in their ability to mobilize quickly because of privacy laws. I think if you look at what happened in Europe, it was a, a, a multiplier for some of the things that, that uh, uh, have happened there that, that caused those governments to delay a little bit and pushing out some of the, the uh, processes that they needed to because of privacy. I think you're seeing that move back. And there was there's a number of issues, I mean, and it, and it varies depending on where you are in the world, with respect to what can you do when you look at the information relying around your employees or, or you know, what information can be given to healthcare providers, what can you collect, how do you check temperature? There's any number of issues around that, and there's a lot of interesting technological solutions that are coming to the table rather quickly on that. But I think you're going to see uh, a lot – in fact, we know this because we're seeing it around the world. There's going to be significant policy changes. I think privacy is going to undergo a, a huge revision. We're already seeing a lot of discussion about that. So this will have not only a labor impact but a large you know, socioeconomic impact of how we interact with each other and how we do business with each other. And I think a significant review uh, of the labor policies is already underway. Now, in terms of other policies, such as we've talked about freedom of movement and other things like that in, in jurisdictions, you would never think that that would come up. Uh, are there any examples of, uh, of that that you can share and what you think the fallout of that will be, in the, at least in the, in the short term? Or it's it's interesting. It's a great question. I mean, if you look at how some of the more traditionally open societies, we won't go through the names, have actually had a harder time managing some of this than uh, some more more uh, authoritarian type regimes. And many many jurisdictions are moving into a, a track and trace kind of program, uh, and and that's a that's a very useful thing in managing the virus. But it may be a very, it may have long-lasting effects because, as we've seen, these these kinds of policies that get put put in place in time of extremists are sometimes very difficult to uh, to back for you know to back out afterwards. And so, I think this is going to have a very material impact on maybe not as much on when we move and how we move, but the uh, the the information that goes along around those movements with individuals. And we've seen a lot of that already. Uh, what about uh, opportunities in the post-coronavirus uh, world? Are you hearing from family offices about investment opportunities or areas that they're exploring? Uh, 
I, I think there's going to be you know enormous opportunities around this. Uh, I mean, we go back to the policy changes. If you just look at the way governments are going to have to rethink the the, the whole supply chain, it's already been uh, under review. What's going to have and you know, what's going to be uh, come out of that from a manufacturing standpoint, pharmaceuticals. You know, a retention of, of strategic commodities, just as a very you know very narrow, specific example. And then, if you're looking at technology, uh, the technology players are really expanding into policy and uh, some other areas in ways they just never have before. So we're seeing huge movement, and just to, just in those two narrow things uh, already, there's been a significant amount uh, of investment. And of course, energy. We can talk about those of us who've lived through those cycles a few times, um, we, we can, there'll be a number of opportunities there because as someone pointed out the other day, the infrastructure and the assets are already in play uh, and they're gonna exist long beyond the virus. So I think there'll be huge opportunities in that space as well. Now you've spent a lot of time in energy. Is that, uh, you think there'll be opportunities domestically as well as internationally or where do you see a focus there? Uh, there, I think the question is there will be. The question will be when that's going to happen. And, and if I was, if I had greater insight into that, I might be on a different call. But, uh, but I think one of the, one of the uh, uh, you know critical things to remember in that space is how much infrastructure has been put in place, and the cost of you know moving those hydrocarbons and producing them, uh, while maybe not economical at the current at the current mode. That investment's already been made. And you know, demand will return. So I think there'll be a lot of interesting opportunities coming out of that. The question is, is you know, the question everybody's asking is it a U or a V? Uh, and time will tell. Any practical tips uh, for family offices? You work with a number of them on, on very sophisticated risk issues. Yeah, and this will seem yeah very, one very very bottom line issue is it maybe seems a bit uh, a bit obvious, but it starts and ends with your people. Uh, and the, the, the midterm resiliency that we're all going to have to face to move through this effectively, you know, that connectivity, not only from a technology to be able to, to move work, but the entities that we've seen that have been able to adapt to this uh, the best have been the ones that are very transparent with their, with their workforce, very candid with them about what's actually happening, and, and very engaged, uh, particularly from a, a, you know, a top-down leadership standpoint, uh, to make sure that people understand there is life after this, and we're moving towards something not that's going to be a little bit different, but but uh, um, we're not going to move back to the way it was. But there is a, you know, I won't say light at the end of the tunnel, but but that engagement, that that resiliency with the team, uh, those that have been able to do that, I think are going to uh, weather this quite well. Thanks, Carl. Uh, appreciate your comments there, John. Do we have you on the line? You do have me on the line. I apologize for the earlier uh, miscommunication. No worries. Well, let's, John, let's, uh, let's get started with your uh, background real quick before we uh, talk about your area. Sure. Thank you very much. And I appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to uh, speak with, uh, with your very important audience, uh, Eddie, very, very much. Uh, my background is I've spent the last 30 years in the healthcare industry, on the uh, mostly on the delivery side. Uh, somewhat also in the uh, insurance and technology side, both as a consultant and as an operator. Uh, I ran a publicly held New York Stock Exchange company that uh, built uh, tech technological tools for uh, physicians and, and uh, uh, working with academic medical centers and insurance companies around, around the country. Uh, and then more recently, I formed Medical Excellence as an organization that is coined as the Family Office for Healthcare, and the idea being that we manage healthcare uh, at the level of, of, of intensity uh, the way that a uh, family office generally will manage the uh, finances and, and lifestyles of, of, their, uh, of, of their principles. Fantastic. Uh, John, uh, you know, in your area, you know, we talked about you know, probability and risk test per author of the black swan, uh, how he's come out and say that COVID-19 is, is not a black swan. Do you agree with that? I, well, it depends on how you define black swan. So let me, let me put it this way. I'll leave the, the, the financial realm to experts like, like you and, and, and others. In terms of the healthcare realm, though, I would say that uh, uh, the way that we 
identify uh, black swan is, is whether it's an unexpected event. And I'm not sure it qualifies thusly. Uh, for years, the NIH and the CDC have been warning about a potential event like this. Uh, and and so, so that, that should, a, a pandemic or a uh, widespread virus should not be uh, a surprise uh, to, to our societies. Uh, as a matter of fact, our own honored guest, Lana Gustenberg, authored and delivered uh, some years ago an assessment that uh, biologics and viruses and the resulting potential pandemics do represent a serious threat to the U.S. and the world. And I think I, I, he'll, he'll correct me if I'm wrong, I'm sure, but I think he was speaking both in terms of naturally occurring and engineered threats. Uh, so, so whether or not it's a black, black swan, the reality is that uh, uh, it's a good segue to talk about how we should prepare for these in the future and whether or not uh, these things should be a black swan in the future as far as an unexpected event. So I, I think we need to prepare for the future inevitable crises like this one. Uh, they're going to happen again. Uh, I'm not sure if they're going to happen in, in much greater frequency or not. Uh, but, you know, it just seems as if uh, every 10 years or so a, a new virus crops up and, and uh, uh, we need to uh, either develop regional responses or, or, in this case, global responses uh, to, to the issue. So the first thing to remember is we'll emerge from this. Uh, yes, major changes are going to be required. Uh, in, in the pandemic res response structures. There's no doubt about it, and they will be implemented. And these changes will be actually very, very far-reaching. But I just want to caution everyone, like in the military, it's always a mistake to organize the future army around the last war, and we can't let this happen going forward. We have a lot of all-knowing arm-track quarterbacks that are cropping up saying that we're, we were woefully unprepared for this black swan or this pandemic. And it's partially true, but actually I would say that it's mostly nonsense. Um, as much as we, we, we want to uh, uh, organize around these uh, perfectly, uh, it's, it's much more difficult to organize in advance an orderly response to every potential health threat than it is to organize a national defense. And why, the reason for that is quite simply the sheer number and complexity of the range of biological threats make it really impossible for us to perfectly build an effective defense system for every possibility. It's just not, it's just not there. For example, and I'm just gonna just spend one more minute on this. For example, COVID requires massive amounts of respirators uh, because this virus attacks the pulmonary system. So the armchair quarterbacks are saying, well, we should have had millions of respirators stockpiled. But three months ago, really, we had no idea about the structure and nature of COVID. So how do you, how do you organize around that in, in the future? Suppose in the future, uh, right after this crisis, which we will get through, by the way, uh, suppose after this crisis, we stockpile millions of respirators, but find out that we need a completely different set of tools for the next one. Really, what we need going forward is a more logical structure to forming the right teams and streamlined decision-making. And we need to cast a wide net within a public-private partnership. That was one area where we really need to improve going forward uh, is, is how the uh, private sector needs to gear up in response to these types of situations within a government uh, uh, dictate and structure. So we need to restructure the pandemic supply lines to quickly bring treatment solutions, as well as the ability to quickly assess and manufacture them. So, you know, as, as far as whether it's a black swan, getting back to that, uh, I, I'm not sure if it qualifies. I'll, I'll qualify it as a, uh, as a major, highly unusual event uh, that will be examined for years to come, and uh, I'm hoping that the powers that be in, in the government and business will come up with the right response structures, not, not, not the stockpiles, the right response structures 
to quickly adapt to whatever the next one is. So I hope that helps. No, that's uh, a, a unique insight in terms of what you're hearing out there in terms of being both strategic and tactical uh, on these things. But with the family offices that you do cover, uh, which are numerous and around the world, which ones were doing it uh, you know, well in terms of preparation and any kind of best practices that you might be able to share with folks on the line? I, I think the best, the best practices country by country have, has really been uh, those countries that made a decision very, very early uh, to do as much as they can to dis for, for social distancing. Uh, right now, in, in, in lieu of effective medicine, we don't, we don't yet have an effective medicine. No matter what they say out there, there is no perfect uh, medicines uh, for someone that is seriously ill with COVID right now. So, and, and we don't have effective prevention other than people staying away from each other right now. Uh, so the, the societies that did that early and most effectively uh, seem to be doing the best. The other uh, comment that I'll make, and, and this is a nod okay? to the United States. Hello? Yes? Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, Continue. this is a nod to the United States is, is that uh, uh, some societies have uh, better uh, healthcare systems and, and better ability to uh, move quickly uh, to take care of seriously ill individuals. So if you go by the numbers on an on a international basis, uh, the United States right now is, is, is doing uh, quite well uh, in terms of the number of people that are dying versus the number of people that have, have the disease. The other thing Eddie I'll mention is we cannot trust the numbers that are out there uh, from it, that in, in countries that previously have experienced COVID. In other words, some of the numbers coming out of some of the countries just don't make sense uh, in light of what we know now. And so I think there's going to be a fundamental restructuring of what our assumptions are about COVID and how we're going to uh, uh, organize around it going forward. So, John, in in that this you know new state, whether it's regardless of the timeline, we're certainly apart. We're certainly uh, you know changed in terms of how we we access healthcare. Uh, how do you and what recommendations do you have for family offices that have to you know seek medical treatment, not for you know COVID, but for other uh, you know, more routine things, and is, is telemedicine really the, the panacea that, uh, that some may be saying it is? Well, I, I think that uh, I, I would think of it this way. Uh, telemedicine works. Uh, it works temporarily, and it will work long term. I think that a lot of, of office visits in the future are going to be uh, will, will change actually to uh, to telemedical ones, uh, therefore opening up critical resources for more serious uh, or chronic uh, issues. Okay, so but as, as it relates to family offices specifically, I think the time to plan for this one is is quite over. Uh, uh, social distancing works. I think that the families. Need to, need to uh, do that going forward uh, and, and stay that way until we have a better handle on the exact nature of the transmission of the disease. But it also gives us very good time now to reflect upon what the risk management profile should be for families uh, going forward, not just for the next pandemics, but as you say, uh, for, for uh, uh, general, uh, receiving general health care. The fact is most families, wealthy or not, uh, affluent or not, don't have very good risk management profiles. Uh, they don't have a centralized uh, uh, medical record. Uh, they, have, uh, they access medicine in disparate places around, around the country or around the world, uh, and they don't have an integrated system to make sure that the information that's necessary to get good care is disseminated in, in, in a good way. 
I think every family office should look at this crisis as a, and in a reflective time, to relook, reexamine completely uh, how they look at health risk. And as you know, Eddie, I've been saying this for years, you and I know each other a long time. I have been saying for years that it is important to look at, react to, and invest in health risk the same way that you invest in uh, making sure that your money's in sound hands. So it's very important to use uh, organized methods to do that. I highly recommend it. Uh, and uh, I hope that this uh, reflective period uh, gives everyone pause and, and they start thinking uh, in terms of, of future health risk because it's, as you can tell right now, uh, it's important. We have a bunch of members now uh, who uh, actually have a plan and they actually have uh, a conduit to receiving high-quality medicine in the midst of this very, very crazy time. That cannot be done by happenstance. It cannot be done by luck. It has to be organized. And that's something that I've been saying for many years now, and, and uh, uh, hopefully it will take a little hold uh, better than, than it has in the past. And then, and I appreciate that, John, and you, you touched on this briefly. What about, in, you know, investment opportunities? You certainly see some very innovative, uh, you know, medical technology and biotechnology, uh, you know, efforts as part of your research and the families that you work with. What do you think that, you know, COVID-19 will change as far as uh, that industry and opportunities there? Well, I think we're going to enter uh, uh, for a uh, sustained amount of time, a golden era uh, in terms of not only healthcare investment, uh, but a golden era in terms of the necessary public-private partnerships between uh, academic medical centers, between people that finance uh, uh, healthcare ideas, and the federal government uh, who is in charge of approving those ideas and getting them out into the marketplace. I think we're going to enter a, a golden era going forward. So for those that are thinking of investing into, into the healthcare world uh, going forward, I, I, think, I think you're going to find it a, a very rich and rewarding area. It's also, though, potentially a dangerous, very, uh, very dangerous area because I see a lot of money pouring into uh, a lot of different ideas, realizing that, and people need to realize this, very few ideas actually come to fruition. So uh, someone is going to either, either on their own uh, or through a professional manager, someone's going to have to have a very keen eye in terms of how to organize uh, a healthcare investment portfolio going forward. Well, thank you, John. I appreciate your uh, comments there. Uh, Lon, are you still on the line with us? Yeah, it's fascinating. I would never get off the line when John's talking. <laughs> Lon, well, thank you. Uh, maybe let's take a step back and look at security in general for family offices. Uh, what's changed now that we're in this crisis? Well, I would say, first of all, I think that uh, if you ever walk into a Costco lately or a Best Buy, you're going to see that there's a real lack of printers on the shelves and computers. It, it's been swept away like it's toilet paper, right? So, you know, it just shows us how many people are, are doing uh, business from home, and besides all the homeschooling we have to do and so forth. And I think especially for, for family offices, I, I've considered many, many vulnerable because they, they don't separate their business activity with their personal in terms of having separate computers and devices and, and email addresses and, you know, VPNs at work and so forth for the work. Now that they're all integrating it and doing so much is being forced at home, I see that risk of mis mixing their devices and computers and, and communications between the personal and the business, which makes them incredibly more vulnerable to hackers and, and compromises. At the same time, we're hitting like a perfect storm in that you know, the number of scams and hackers that are out there is, is, is growing at an inc incredible rate. 
it's like, uh, you know, they're all shark smelling blood. They say, let's get after everybody. The scams out there are just in, in the emails trying with, with phishing, trying to get you to download uh, a fake charity or let you know there's a new virus, uh, there's a new vaccine out for this virus, so forth. They're everywhere. And, um, and it, you know, all the everybody's at greater risk of someone hacking into you. So uh, to me, that's the bigger change um, right now. And then uh, in regards to due diligence, it's become even more uh, difficult for for someone to do the kind of things that, that meet legal compliances for your business activity. Uh, you're at a point now where you, you can't make a, a – uh, um, a site visit, you can't meet you know, your potential partners or your investors in person, you need, you know, the, the things, and you can't get documents um, on hard copy, so there's going to be waivers to that, and I'm sure Carl can speak to some of those new waivers on, on due diligence compliance, but you're still required to do a lot of due diligence, so what you got to do is you got to expand your, your, your remote capabilities, you got to rely on professionals to step in and say, I, uh, and, and multiply your, your search engines and your, and your your ability to reach out and make calls to, uh, globally to verify your information and to do that kind of due diligence that makes up for for the inability to do uh, things you would normally do in person. So I think those are the big big changes right now and the, the greater threats um, at this point. Excellent. Uh, in terms of uh, in terms of due diligence, do you think uh, you know this desktop open source research? It's, it's certainly a challenge. Uh, to do in the short term to get uh, good results? Or do you think that there will be innovations that will happen around that, or is it just a matter of maybe we have to take a pause on, on some of the diligence things uh, in, in the short term to, to make sure that we have that validity as, as, as companies and family offices are trying to make decisions on a whole host of issues? Well, you know, from what I'm seeing, I, I, I'm very impressed with the technologies and, and, and abilities to do that. The capabilities are out there to do even better due diligence than we've ever seen and even doing better some of the things than, than we can do on a personal basis. I mean, um, it's, it's human error and mis, you know, mixed calculations and human mistakes, I think, that create the greatest risk. Um, and if we rely a little bit more on due diligence and do extensive background and investigations through that, and augmenting it with with with, uh, with with human sources where they're located, and we can still reach out by phone, is really more than adequate right now. And I just think that people have to rely on that more. I just think the problem has been too often we don't do enough due diligence, even on a cursory amount, to to, to everybody we're dealing with. Um, we just take a lot of things on on blind faith that we should have easily just done a um, a check on. So I'm sure. pretty confident that, that we're where we need to be technology with the technology that's out there now. It's just that we have to utilize it. In, in terms of remote working, that's certainly something that's come up in a, in a variety of areas. What are you seeing around cybersecurity threats uh, that are there or, or things that family offices can implement today uh, beyond what you mentioned already of keeping your personal and business on two different systems? Right. Well, Will can talk as well about this, but, uh, you know, you have to have a VPN. I think when you do your business, you need end-to-end -end, uh, um, uh, encryption. Uh, you need to just sort of get off the regular phones and get onto some of the things that, that are out there. I mean, uh, things like WhatsApp aren't perfect, but they're a lot better than just speaking on the phone, Signal and others. Um, I, I don't want to recommend any particular thing without knowing the family office's circumstance and a location and everything, but there's a lot of ways. To, to vastly improve what you have. And then <clears throat> I'm always recommending stronger use of passwords and doing that basic uh, better tradecraft and, and, and um, uh, uh, cybersecurity um, hygiene to just, just make sure you're not making a mistake. I, I always am concerned that people are out there looking for one one size fits all kind of one step solution. Let me get the best software that's out there and I'm, I'm safe. When it may not fit or be appropriate for your your business or your family office or your home. Um, 
one size does not fit all. You, we need to look at what your unique situation is, what's your travel level, and make that fit and look at your best options and make sure that everybody is on board within the office and the business, that they understand the system and they follow it. They don't give away passwords. Um, you know, my time at the agency, when I, when I had command oversight on some of our offensive cyber operations, which is a nice way of saying hacking against you know, some of the, our tough adversaries, you know, you'd like to think that we had used supercomputers and we breaking in getting codes, but to be quite honest, without giving away sources and methods, the way the greatest accomplishments were done is simply taking advantage of human weakness. And uh, um, it, it, I would people aren't traveling as much now, which is lowers risk. But when people were traveling, you know, leaving your computer in a in a hotel safe is is a, is a dangerous thing. It takes about ten seconds to get into. Same way with using. Uh, Wi-Fi on trains and planes and, and and in hotels and at airports is just is just asking to give away all your information. So, you know, those are the things to keep in mind that everybody's on board and understands what they have to do to to, to follow things to maintain uh, cybersecurity. Well, thank you, uh, thank you, Lon. Uh, Will, are, do we have you on the line? I am. I'm here. Excellent. So, Will, uh, you know, you help run a, a global security company, and the focus that your your work has been with family office has been uh, tremendously around cybersecurity. Uh, you know, as Lon mentioned, that family offices are increasingly working from home. What are what are other some uh, steps that you think family offices should take to protect themselves in in this new work at home environment? Yeah, so Eddie, what, what I would say is a large part of vulnerabilities associated with cybersecurity is tied to the human factor, and, and Lon referenced this uh, and its effectiveness during its time at CIA. Um, so as a result of this pandemic, we find ourselves um, confronting changing work schedules and routine, and a lot of things have been disrupted, and there's an accompanying psychological ex stress. Uh, experienced by many, regardless of their financial or economic situation. So as a result of this, distress, guards have come down, or at least we're more distracted. And additionally, now you have this digital overlap that Lon had also mentioned, meaning the barrier between work and personal has, has been removed, or at least lowered, and threats targeting you or your family office can, can easily cross-pollinate or, or jump. So hackers and criminals or, or cyber criminals are aware of this, and they're, they're going to take advantage of the situation. So now more than ever, uh, it's important to schedule sessions with your family office and members to discuss cyber hygiene, uh, to remind and teach your colleagues and those that you work with about the methods used to hack you, uh, how to identify them, and how to defend yourself against them. Hackers take advantage uh, of human weaknesses, um, and addressing this, especially during times of crisis, is, is absolutely critical. It was mentioned before, but uh, we've seen several convincing, very convincing, coronavirus-themed emails purporting to be from official government sources, uh, as well as websites constructed designed to steal personal information or install malware or malicious software on computer systems, uh, which allows them to gain unauthorized entry in order to access or destroy uh, valuable information and data. So. While discussing cyber hygiene is, is important, practicing it, or at least implementing it, cannot be overemphasized. Uh, in, in fact, keeping your operating systems and software updated, using unique, uneasy-to-guess passwords uh, for each of your individual accounts, and setting up something called two-factor authentication where available, makes you that much harder and more expensive to attack which really is a contributing factor that will influence someone targeting you to probably move on to a more vulnerable, uh, more susceptible target. It's two other things that you can do or should do, create some guides and how-to documents for new software that your staff will be using, uh, or some advice on existing applications that will be used in a different way. And make sure the devices uh, that your, your office, uh, family office teams are using encrypt the data at rest. Uh, so if that device is lost or stolen, uh, that, that data is at least protected. Uh, Will, you mentioned sort of training in the, the human element. How do you do this when you know, it's a little challenging to get people in their conference room together or to do a training session and when everybody's remote? 
I, honestly, I think this is the best time Advice. to do it. Yeah, because, I mean, organizations, including family offices, are, are highly susceptible to attack right now. Folks are working from home. I think this presents the perfect opportunity to arrange, you know, a discussion very similar to what we're, we're doing right now uh, amongst family offices. I mean, we're very, very high-profile uh, individuals getting uh, uh, hacked through their through their uh, mobile devices. Now that you know we're all at home, or what kind of advice would you give to families? Uh, yeah, so globally, about one fifth of family office executives report they've been no, they've knowingly suffered a cyber attack. In, in reality, uh, the number is a lot higher, and I can attest to this because most cyber attacks are covert. So the, most of the victims are, are unaware of the uh, the attack on their systems. Um, there are four common cyber attack methods uh, used against family offices. So phishing, and we've talked about this a little bit before. So that's a legitimate-looking email scam. Uh, there's malware, which is the, the installation of malicious software in a computer system that would give someone access. Uh, there's social engineering, uh, where individuals are targeted and misled into providing some personal information. And there's something called ransomware, which many of you uh, probably heard about in the news, which encrypts the contents of a computer uh, and then payment is demanded to restore access. So how, how do you protect or defend yourself against uh, these various attacks? Methods. Well, I spoke earlier about the importance of cyber hygiene, but there's some additional things that uh, family offices uh, should at least be aware of. You should be reevaluating money transfer protocols uh, with your with your financial service providers. You should, uh, where applicable, ensure that multi-factor authentication uh, is in place for any monetary withdrawal requests. Uh, you should also be aware that uh, more sophisticated scammers have the ability to what we call spoof inbound caller IDs. Uh, so it looks like it's coming from a legitimate financial institution or, or a government entity. So practicing that good cyber hygiene can help reduce or at least delay the damage uh, of a cyber attack. But secondly, uh, having your computer systems monitored and responded to by cybersecurity professionals is, is absolutely invaluable. So in, in the same way that family offices listening today wouldn't leave uh, their investments uh, in the hands of an unseasoned professional without uh, a specific specialty, it's important for family offices to also make the distinction between IT and, and cybersecurity. So, but both have their distinct role to play, uh, and, and I really do encourage everyone on this call to engage with and retain cybersecurity professionals, especially those who've been in the trenches. And given this, this ever-changing threat landscape um, and, and the more advanced methods now used to attack, you really do want the equivalent of a special forces team defending, uh, responding, and supporting you and your, your IT team. Thank you, Will. Um, we'll go to Lon and Will. Lon, we'll start with you. you know, uh, why are family offices such interesting targets, uh, especially at this time. I mean, why not go after lar large corporations? Is there, what what it is about them uh, that fam that you know that makes them interesting? Well, I would I would say they're they're publicly known. Um, they control a lot of wealth, and they have a very low level uh, amount of security and and, and security uh, cybersecurity and normal security protocols compared to to other financial institutions. So they're just an easier target with with uh, with a lot more to get at. Um, they run complex operations with a small staff. Um, they have informal governance mechanisms. Uh, they lack many times are unwilling to commit the resources to put in, you know, information security and IT systems. Um, so that all of this comes together that, that their security systems overall and the risk mitigation is much lower than other uh, areas where um, the hacker could see a great deal of, uh, of funds to, to, to hack and get at. So it, it just makes them an easier target. Will, what about uh, you? Any additional thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I've been quite blunt uh, 
when asked this question before, and I'll maintain my, my stance on this, uh, family offices are increasingly targeted because they tend to be easy targets. And uh, I, I once asked a room full of family offices um, if they had performed a security assessment in the past year, and only one hand was raised. Uh, so that they're, they're typically not taking it seriously, and they're not aware of their existing vulnerabilities. And hackers love two things. They love low-hanging fruits and, and, and the path of least resistance. And there are over 10,000 family offices globally, managing $4 trillion in assets. And despite that significant dollar amount in assets under management, they're, they're normally not operating with the same level of cybersecurity protocols and systems that their portfolio companies would maintain. And um, the, the secret is out. Uh, the secret is out in the cyber criminal world that family offices uh, are, are easy to target. Yeah, and I would just like to add this line, um, and I've talked to Will about this a few times, is, is when you talk to family offices and you, and you recommend that they, someone take a look at their system and even check and see if there's any malware on there or any breach that's underway, um, usually the response is, I've got a great IT guy, I'm fine. Well, your, I, I found the IT guy is the most, is the obstruction to really, and the vulnerability that's been created because they're, they're not security specialists. In fact, they would probably want not to find a problem because they think they'll be blamed for it or terminated by the family office. So, you know, I haven't found them great partners when I work with clients and look at it. I, I would rather talk to the head of the family office and, and sort of use the analogy that, you know, that your IT guy, if you compare it to health, if John's still listening, you may have a personal trainer or a dietitian that's helping you stay healthy, you know, but that doesn't prevent you from going to see the doctor once a year to get a checkup. And if he finds a, that you have a tumor or cancer or something, you don't blame your, your trainer or your dietitian for that. You, you have a specialist take care of it and remove it. I mean, it's basically the same situation with cybersecurity. Um, uh, keeping your IT guy on, he's got a different job. He wants to make life convenient, wants things to run for you as best he can. He's not really able to, to, to look out for all the things you want. And when he does find a problem, he'll try to minimize it based on his, his desire to, 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 to avoid any repercussions. So, so you got to look at it as two different sectors completely, as Will points out. Well, uh, thank you, Lon. And, and before we start the session, I'd like to take one last opportunity to go through our, our panelists here and, and you know, perhaps you can give us one more part, piece of parting advice uh, that family offices uh, could implement today, given given the working uh, environment that we're in. And Carl, let's start with you. Uh, thanks. I actually would pick up on the comments that were just made, and I would even be more direct about it. I think what makes the family offices vulnerable, not just to cyber issue, but to other risk issues, is they're by definition entities that are based on trust. And that's what the bad actors you know, seek to uh, turn that into a vulnerability and a weakness. So not to make everybody paranoid, but the world has changed. And some of those trust relationships that have been there um, in some instances for many generations are now becoming those strengths becoming your weaknesses. And I think I would go back to the comment I made in the beginning about it's really going to start and end with your people and, and the resiliency of those people, the loyalty of those people, and the communication with them, you know, more than just the technology issues we've talked about. But but it's that, that in looking at those interpersonal relationships and being uh, and having the confidence in them uh, in the modern world. Eddie? Thanks, Carl. Uh, John, over to you. Yes, sir. In, in terms of uh, parting, parting advice uh, before we get into Q&A, your, your final thoughts. Of course. Yeah. I, so, well, I mean, there's some immediate practical advice, which sounds trite, but it's, it's really important. Social distancing is, is, is essential, uh, even in areas that have very little COVID exp experience uh, thus far. Uh, because the fact is that it's it's going to come or it won't uh, if we can uh, do take the preventative measures that are are uh, very very essential uh, going forward. That is, wash your hands a lot, uh, st stay away, and and 
and uh, be very careful for the early signs. And uh, if, if anyone would like uh, a little uh, uh, written piece that I put together on this, uh, I'm happy to, if, if you just go through, Eddie, in terms of your, your information, I can, I, can get, uh, I can get that information over to you. Uh, sure. But I think the bottom line is that we'll, we'll, we'll get through this, uh, this, this uh, particular crisis, and uh, I just want to make sure that uh, people realize that, uh, that there is a way to get caught short, uh, and then there are ways to prepare. And you're, you're all pretty much experts in that uh, these days in terms, of, in terms of the financial area, uh, learning more about the, uh, uh, the cyber threats and, and, and those type is very important. And I think healthcare should be on the same mantle. Thank you, John. Lon, your, your final thoughts? Uh, I'd just say a couple of points is, is that, you know, this is a great time to take stock in everything you're doing. Um, and, you know, you're talking, thinking about, well, next time I'll have plenty of things stockpiled that I can't get in the store right now. But just a time to think about when we move out of this, are you, how well are you positioned for the new world order, whatever that may be? Um, do I have the security and risk mitigation professionals on board with me under some sort of retainer so I can call them 24-7 and get answers. And the last point I make is those people are available. I'm available. Will's available. All through Eddie. If you need a problem and you, and you have an issue you want to work on, nothing says you can't start fixing things right now. You don't just have to hunker down. You can start, you know, protecting yourself better immediately, and you can get that advice without any problem, and, and, and we're available for you in terms of what you can do right now, what's best for you as an individual office, for your family, and so forth, in terms of approving, proving your, your, your posture security-wise. Thank you, Lon. And Will, uh, final thoughts from you. Yeah, Eddie, without becoming paranoid, uh, family offices, I think, should embrace the fact that they are a target for cyber criminals and hackers, uh, and they should, they should prepare accordingly. Now, this may sound extreme. My, my view on this is a result of having seen the, the damage uh, and sometimes devastating uh, personal embarrassment uh, a cyber attack can have. And unfortunately, family offices don't tend to act until they've started to experience pain or panic. So be proactive. Uh, work with cyber and other security specialists. A modest investment today will pay dividends. Um, a robust family office security program uh, looks like a ring. And everyone who works or belongs to family should be inside the ring, regardless of age, role, responsibility, or location. Additionally, everyone who serves or supports the people inside the ring, the family office, should be evaluated and assessed for, for the vulnerabilities uh, they may have. Uh, we, we've entered, as you all know well, uh, a time of um, geopolitical uncertainty and stress on a global scale. And uh, it's my assessment, it's our firm's assessment, that those with economic advantages and means will, will likely be increasingly targeted by various actors uh, as a result. So those are my closing comments. Thank you, Will. I have this one question that we have uh, come through the Q&A. Uh, it's a question for John and Carl. You know, preparing for the next pandemic, if stockpiling equipment is not uh, the solution, what protocols and what strategies should we be putting in that? So over to Carl and John on that. I, I'll jump in. I think it's, it's about having a plan. You know, you have a, a real business continuity plan that's not a document that somebody like me wrote and, uh, and emailed to you. It's something that you have you've thought it through. The, uh, the, the ring, I like that comment that was just made, that that group of trusted individuals uh, you practice it. It's like anything else. Think about it like playing a musical instrument. If you never pick it up and practice it, you're not going to be very good at it. The, the, the entities that we see who have, have had these plans, who thought it out, who know how to communicate with each other, know where to go and, and what to do when, and have actually practiced that and picked up the uh, lessons learned, are doing pretty well in this because I, I think – while we can prepare for things, whether it's a pandemic, a cyber attack, whatever it might be, uh, history shows us that we are unlikely to know exactly what the next moment of extremis is going to be. But those plans, uh, if properly put in place and, and worked through, 
are flexible enough to where you at least have, you know, people know what to do, you know how to get a hold of them, you know how to communicate with them, and, you, and maybe most importantly, you know where they are. And, you know, having um, cash reserves and other things is less of an issue probably for someone on this call, but uh, having that ability to move with a war chest when you need it. And I think it's it's really practicing that plan on a, on a pretty frequent basis uh, is what we've seen has been the most practical advice. Excellent. And then uh, the last question in here we close is around vaccine development. Uh, John, your, your thoughts on, on where we are with vaccine development and the process of uh, people uh, getting towards that and sort of in innovation and capital flows towards uh, vaccines and, uh, on the coronavirus. Eddie, can I, can I put my two cents in on the last question as well? Of course. Oh, super. Uh, so, I, I, because I, I think the comments, uh, the earlier comment was perfect, and I just want to elaborate on it, actually. Uh, the, the reality here is we have to close some synapses that exist uh, between the uh, uh, public authorities at the, at the various levels and agencies uh, and the public, and also the uh, private industry and the public and, and the, uh, the public sector. And closing those uh, is, is actually, uh, as stated earlier, it's, it's, ha it's actually having a plan. Uh, but I think the most important point here is that we have to organize uh, around future pandemics, not just in terms of basic equipment. There are some basic equipment uh, shortages uh, that we should not have been caught short. It shouldn't have happened. But I think more importantly, going forward, as a matter of public policy, we should uh, understand the decision-making and not just the quality of decision-making, but the timing of decision-making going forward. We need to look much more closely at how government and private industry, uh, especially in the medical world, uh, uh, combines and, and collaborates to uh, very, very quickly uh, respond to future pandemics uh, or future medical crises. And, and get the right uh, care, get it organized, and, and also get the right solutions uh, going forward in terms of, because as I mentioned earlier, it's impossible to figure out what the next one is and, and, and what are the attacks. But if we have more streamlined or better understanding of how we can streamline uh, decision-making and collaboration among the major constituencies, I think we'll do a lot better going forward. So uh, regarding vaccines, uh, uh, there is absolutely no doubt that we will have a vaccine uh, within a year. Uh, and, and it'll be tested, it'll be successful. Uh, we will overcome that biologic uh, I issue. It's just a matter of timing. Uh, so I think that uh, w without, without question, we will have a vaccine for this particular, for, for this particular problem. The other, the other uh, comment that I'll make is, is how to get future vaccines uh, for future situations out and, and uh, organized better. I, I think that we'll have a more streamlined uh, assessment and approval process, testing, assessment, approval, and, and, uh, and uh, a, a faster way to get these things out into the marketplace than we do currently. We have a clunky system in terms of approvals, and that needs to improve going forward. Well, uh, thank you, John, and, and, and thank you all of us uh, for, for joining us today. If you'd like to get in touch with today's speakers or you have any questions, you know, please send us an email to familyoffice at bostonprivate.com. That's familyoffice, all one word, at bostonprivate.com. Uh, I'd also recommend that you check out our website, uh, you can find numerous resources for our newsletter uh, and learn more about how we help family offices. Bostonprivate.com forward slash family office. That's bostonprivate.com forward slash family office. Thank you to our panelists today. Thank you for all of you for joining us. Uh, be safe out there. Thanks so much. This podcast is solely for informational purposes and is not a solicitation or an offer to buy any security or instrument or to participate in any trading strategy. 
The opinions expressed and information contained in this podcast are given in good faith, may be subject to change without notice, and are as of the date issued. All sourced information is believed to be reliable, but has not been independently verified. This podcast discusses general market activity, industry or sector trends, or other broad-based economic, market, or political conditions, and should not be construed as personalized investment advice. The following does not represent a complete analysis of every material fact with respect to the topics covered herein. All investments carry a risk of loss. Neither BPW nor its investment professionals or representatives provide tax, accounting, or legal advice. Listeners should review any planned financial transactions or arrangements that may have tax, accounting, or legal implications with their advisors. For additional information about us, please refer to our Form ADV Disclosure Brochure, which may be obtained by contacting us at 800-422-6172 or info at bostonprivate.com. Private banking and trust services are offered through Boston Private Bank and Trust Company, a Massachusetts chartered trust company. Wealth management services are offered through Boston Private Wealth LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor and wholly-owned subsidiary of Boston Private Bank and Trust Company. Boston Private Bank is an FDIC member and equal housing lender. Investments are not FDIC-insured, not bank-guaranteed, and may lose value.